If you're visiting with us this morning or it's your first time joining us online, we love God's Word. So we as a body have been reading through the book of 1 Timothy over the past few weeks, uh, as you heard this morning, and we have been preaching through the book of Acts. And this morning, we find ourselves in chapter 23. Born in 1887, Violet Jessup was studying to be a nun until her mom got sick. At 21, she took a job as a a stewardess for a company called White Star Line, who had just launched three massive luxury ocean liners named the Olympic, the Titanic, and the Britannic. Now, Ms. Jessup was serving on the Olympic when on its, on its fifth commercial voyage, it collided with the HMS Hawk, which was a British warship near the south of England. And, and thankfully, neither she nor anyone else was killed in that collision. But after the incident, she was able to quickly move to the Titanic so she could serve on its maiden voyage from Southampton to New York City in April of 1912. Famously, after the massive ship hit an iceberg near Newfoundland, it sank in the frigid waters of the North Atlantic Ocean. Miss Jessup made it onto a lifeboat as one of the ship's officers placed a, a, a tiny little bundled baby in her arms. Eight hours later, a ship called the Carpathia rescued Violet and the others. Aboard the rescue ship, the baby's frantic mother ran up to her and pulled the baby from her arms. A couple years later, after World War I broke out, the third ocean liner, the Britannic, was requisitioned to serve as a hospital ship. Now, Violet Jessup is now a nurse, and she was assigned to serve aboard this massive vessel. In November of 1916, the ship struck a mine planted by a German U-boat in the Aegean Sea. It sank in less than an hour. Amazingly, Miss Jessup also survived this shipwreck and went on to serve 42 years at sea throughout her career before she retired. So imagine the intricate sequence of events that led to Violet Jessup surviving three shipwrecks at sea. Imagine the number of just minuscule details that made her survival possible. In today's passage, we see the convergence, really, of a series of events that not only lead to Paul surviving yet another close call with death, but to his eventual proclamation of the gospel to multiple Roman officials and kings. Our passage is Acts 23, verses 12 through 35. Hear then the word of King Jesus. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine the case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and, going aside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? 
And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So Lord, minister to us now. I with King David say, open my mouth and my lips will declare your praise. So bring glory to Jesus now through the power of your spirit, I ask in his name. Amen. The truth in context that becomes evident in our passage is this. Nothing can stop the gospel from advancing simply because King Jesus said so. Absolutely nothing can stop the gospel from advancing because Jesus said so. Now, our passage describes an assassination attempt comprised of really three consecutive scenes. The plan is launched in verses 12 through 15. The plan is uncovered in verses 16 through 22. And finally, the plan is thwarted in the final verses of our section. So let's begin by looking at how the plot was launched. Now, Luke describes this whole ordeal as a conspiracy in verse 13. And it really is. The the 40-plus Jewish assassins conspire with the chief priests and the Jewish elders to trick the Roman authorities. The plan is to have the Jewish council to tell the tribune to bring Paul to them for some additional questioning, so they'd have to move Paul's location. And as they go, the plan is that the assassins will ambush Paul on the way and kill him. Now, these Jews are so radical, that they they swear a strict oath not to eat any food until they have killed Paul. But since Paul escapes their clutches, and if you flip to the end, is still very much alive at the end of the book of Acts. In fact, he's teaching the gospel for two more years in Rome. Presumably, either these guys eventually starved to death or they had to break their vow because Paul, by the end of this section, is well out of their grasp. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. 
the idea here is that these guys want justice according to their own thinking. So they're attempting to finally rid this man from the earth. So they conspire with the Jewish religious leaders to take matters into their own hands. And this is where the irony of the situation just just drips off the page. The chief priests, the elders, and the council, essentially all the religious leaders of the Jews, they, they colluded together to vindicate the honor of God's name by violating God's word. Because they thought Paul was a blasphemer. So he was not speaking the truth. So they wanted to eradicate him from the earth. The problem is that they were agreeing, the Jewish religious leaders were agreeing to break the fifth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. And at least some of this group had already broken the eighth commandment by bearing false witness against Paul with their trumped up charges about him earlier regarding the temple. Jeremiah's words come to mind, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The religious leaders in this situation would have done well to have considered Jeremiah 17.10, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So the, the, the stop sign that these guys just blew past because they were blinded by their perspective on the situation is that by taking matters into their own hands, They were making a mockery, not only of Roman law, but God's own law, as expressed in his holy word, a word they purported to revere. Which brings up an interesting question for us to consider this morning. Is there anything that you care so much about, you would consider violating God's word in order to either get it or to to keep it or to defend it, whatever the it is for you. A home or a job, the safety of your kids perhaps, your wife, or 401k, maybe a relationship with someone, or perhaps the protection of your reputation. Or even as was the case with these guys, defending God's honor. To be clear, there is nothing that we should care so much about that we would be willing to violate God's word in order to get it, to keep it, or to defend it. But the problem with pointing out something like this is that we would all agree with this idea in principle. It's a little bit like asking Christians if they love Jesus. Everyone is going to say yes. We have to come at the question another way in order to to get a more accurate diagnosis of the heart. In order to understand whether or not we love Jesus, we would have to ask other questions. Things like, do you desire him? Do you desire to spend time with Jesus, communing with him in God's word? Do you obey him? For Jesus said, if you you love me, obey my commands. Do we long to see Jesus' face? To face? Do we serve his glorious bride, the church? Do we exult in the name of Jesus and want above all things for him to receive the glory due his name? These are the types of questions that we need to ask ourselves that may reveal the true answer about our love for Jesus. 
But in terms of diagnosing, if we would consider violating God's word in order to get, keep, or defend something in our lives, the first question I think to ask is, are you now, currently, violating God's word to get, keep, or protect something in your life? If so, there's your answer. Now, don't let yourself off the hook here by trying to think of a hypo, kind of a hypothetical example of situational ethics. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your life now in accordance with God's word. Are you lying now? Are you lying by holding back information to protect your reputation? Are you avoiding repenting of sin to, to keep a relationship intact? Are you willing to steal time from work or misrepresent what you're doing financially to, to either get or to keep more money? Are you misprioritizing your giving versus your spending in order to keep, to keep a lifestyle that you perceive to be comfortable? Are you willing to commit sexual immorality before marriage to get or to keep a relationship that you find valuable? Are you willing to disrespect your husband or to demean your wife in order to keep more control in your relationship? Would you consider letting others look worse or, or make, making yourself look better than you actually are in order to protect how people perceive your character or even to enhance your reputation? or consistent with the, the specific application of this particular passage, would you treat someone rudely or with contempt, either online or to their face or even in your heart, someone with whom you disagree theologically, under the guise of defending or protecting the honor of God and the truth of his word? Now, we may not typically think about it or frame it the way that I'm framing it, but there are a thousand ways and a thousand more ways we might violate God's word because we are passionate about something or to, to get or to keep or to defend something that's really important to us. Just like, just like the conspirators in our passage. Just allow the shocking nature of this fact to arrest your heart, the Jewish religious leaders, that is, the experts of God's law, those who taught God's law, were willing to violate God's law in the name of defending the honor of the law giver. I can just hear the passage from Jeremiah 17, again, just echoing somewhere off in the distance. But as you consider the ways that you have been willing to, to violate God's law yourself, I, I want you to take heart this morning that the purpose of the law was to expose sin. To serve as a guardian until Christ came. Now, sin is, sin is always wrong. But our inability to fulfill the law or to fully obey the law is what drives us to Christ who fulfilled the law on our behalf. Since Christ came, we can be justified by faith through his atoning work on Calvary's cross. Therefore, we are no longer under a guardian. Rather, in Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith. That is, heirs according to promise. 
So praise God for the good news of the gospel that salvation is possible through faith in Christ. Amen. Because Christ came to get you on the cross and keep you through the Spirit and protect you every moment that you breathe, therefore, you are now free. You are now free to obey the law, to obey Jesus himself with zeal and with absolute joy from the heart. This is the good news of the gospel. Oh, that if, if the Jewish leaders, rather than violating God's law in a misguided attempt to vindicate God's glory, if they would have looked to Christ, they could have been saved. That is to Christ who is the end of the law for all who believed, including them. Had they done so, instead of attempting to kill Paul yet again, they could have rejoiced with these words. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Romans 10. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. In this section, I find two ideas really fascinating. The first is the mention of Paul's family here. The fact that Paul has family in Jerusalem, it fits perfectly with what Paul had earlier testified to in chapter 22 and verse 3 when he was before the people. At that time, he said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, but brought up in this city meaning Jerusalem. I was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Now the young man, or probably a teenager here, that's mentioned is Paul's nephew, the son of Paul's sister. So it's unclear what Paul's family thought about the proclamation of the gospel that Paul was offering. But what is clear from this passage is that his nephew desires to protect Paul from harm. Now, the families of the apostles, they, they rarely play a significant role in the New Testament, but they're always present, even if in the background. I think it's just helpful to remember that the various dramatic and dangerous events that occur throughout Acts that the apostles encountered, they didn't happen in isolation. These guys are not lone rangers or, or, or special agents. They, they were sons and brothers. And at least some of them were fathers and husbands. There was real pain and real fear, real heartbreak and, and real exhilaration for these men and their families as they, they sought to fulfill the commission given to them by their beloved Lord Jesus. They're not highly trained special forces that are, just, that are just executing a meticulously planned mission. These are average people with, with ordinary families living out their everyday lives, just seeking to obey God. And the plan is exactly the same today, by the way. The kingdom of God advances on earth that is, people are snatched from the fires of hell. Demons are rendered powerless. Satan is silenced. And evil plans are thwarted when very average people like, like you and me with, with typical families like you and like me share the gospel with others through the power of the Holy Spirit as we simply trust in Jesus and live out our lives. The NIV puts Psalm 8-2 this way, through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. How incredible is that truth? So 
young people in particular, and it's thrilling because we're going to be baptizing a couple of young people today. Young people, I want you to listen very carefully. This verse says that when you praise God, Satan himself is silenced because your singing means the good news of the gospel has been passed to the next generation. So, young ones, open your mouths. Open your mouths to praise our God and King and do so with all of your might. Because when you do, God shuts Satan's mouth as a result of your praise. When the gospel is proclaimed, Satan has nothing to say. This this makes sense if you think about it, because the name Satan itself means accuser. When you praise God, for the good news of the gospel in particular, you are already acknowledging you are a sinner and worthy of condemnation. So so what is Satan going to accuse you of? He can't shame you either because you are praising God as the one who has redeemed you for his glory and honor. Just crickets in hell. Crickets in hell when the gospel is proclaimed. So, kids, whatever age you are, never doubt the power of what God might do through you by the power of the unstoppable Holy Spirit when you obey Jesus in faith. No matter what age you are, God loves to demonstrate his power through very ordinary weakness. He does so because it greatly encourages those of us who who are in fact weak. And it reminds the powers of hell that no matter how hard they try, that God alone ultimately rules heaven and earth. On our own, Satan would crush us. But Jesus is Lord of the spiritual realm. As Jesus himself said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In other words, nothing can stop the gospel from advancing simply because Jesus said so. Now, second, look, look at the way in this section, look at the way this, this evil assassination plot is exposed and ultimately foiled. Just like Violet Jessup, just notice how many little details had to work out in order for Paul to be rescued again from death. Because in preparation for this message, I went back to Acts 9, which is where Jesus confronts Paul on the road to Damascus. And I counted at least 11 situations where Paul was either, they were attempting to either kill Paul on the spot, imprison him, his life is in great danger, or since they can't find Paul, they beat someone else in his stead. And here, they're trying to bring it to an end finally by assassinating him. And yet, he is rescued from death. In the first place, Paul's saved from an assassination attempt because his nephew, just think about the details again, we're thinking through the details. What had to be true in order for Paul to be saved here? Paul is saved from an assassination attempt because his nephew, probably a teenager, he overhears the plans that are being made. Either that or someone from that group told him. Why? Verse 16. Second, his nephew's actually able to get into the barracks to see Paul. I mean, even if Paul was allowed visitors, it's no guarantee that his nephew could have gotten to Paul at all. This is a place where the the Roman soldiers lived. If at any checkpoint or from any soldier, Paul's nephew had heard, 
Yeah, nice try, kid. Get out of here. It means Paul would never find out about the plot. And he would ultimately be killed. Like, if you're a young person, I mean, if you're a person, (laughs) would you be comfortable going into the back barracks where hundreds of Roman soldiers lived to tell them something? I've been in a lot of locker rooms in my life, and they're sketchy enough. I I don't know what the Roman soldier barracks look like, but I, I would have been very hesitant to walk in there. But Paul directs, Paul directs one of the Roman centurions to take the young man to the tribune. And he does. Verse 17. That strikes me as probably not typical. I can't imagine these Roman soldiers typically listening to directives given to them by their prisoners. But he responds immediately and he responds promptly to Paul. Then the tribune, he responds with genuine interest. He, he takes the young man aside privately and says, what did, you, what did you want to tell me? Again, that is really surprising to me. That is not how I anticipated him responding. And then imagine being a young person talking to an extremely important and powerful Roman official and feeling emboldened enough to tell him, don't believe the Jewish leaders. That in and of itself is extraordinary. Verse 21. And finally, the tribune orders Paul's nephew to keep silent about what he told him, verse 22, to maintain the element of surprise And what happens next demonstrates that the tribune clearly took this warning very seriously. So, I again say to you, especially you young people, since Paul's young nephew played such an important role here in in saving Paul's life and thwarting Satan's plans, I want you to have courage I want you to have courage to do what God has called you to do at school and in your homes and with your friends. You may be the very person God has raised up to do something important in a very difficult situation. If you sense that is true, that God is calling you to action in a a real-life situation, in something that's really happening in your lives right now. If you sense that is true, respond in faith. My encouragement to you is to respond in faith and be obedient to God. You might feel almost completely powerless in this situation, but God loves to demonstrate his extraordinary power, often in very ordinary circumstances. In fact, God once told Paul, and his name, Paul or Paulus, means just little. God once told this little man, my power is made perfect in weakness. And God did great things through him. So, Obey God if you believe he wants you to do something. You have no idea what great things God might want to do through you. Now, Lysias responds to the nephew and to this threat decisively. Verse 23, then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor who lived in the capital region. Governor Felix lives in Caesarea. So, Claudius Lysias figures that he can preempt this assassination attempt by moving immediately and moving Paul through the night before anybody is even aware of it. 
and he pulls together just a huge contingent of armed guards and he sends Paul out as quickly as possible. And he writes a letter to Governor Felix to give him some context about why he's sending this man to him. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. What's the first thing that you notice about this letter? I mean, especially if you've been here over the last couple of weeks when we preached through this particular event in real time from Acts 22 you will notice that Lysias' account deviates to a significant degree about what actually happened. Lysias tells Felix that he found out that the Jews were beating a Roman citizen, so he rescued Paul, this Roman citizen. Now, no doubt that Lysias and the soldiers saved Paul's life. There's, There's no doubt about that. But what really happened was that when the riot broke out, Lysias ran down and found the Jews beating Paul. So when this official and the soldiers show up, the people stopped beating Paul. So Lysias binds Paul and arrests him. And they're taking him up the steps to to go to the back barracks. While this is happening, Paul begs Lysias to let him speak to the people. So he does. But at the end of Paul's speech, the crowd again erupts in anger. Lysias is curious about this, so he takes Paul back and and stretches him out to scourge him, that is to flog him, in order to find out the truth about why the Jews are mad at him. Now when a centurion finds out that Paul is actually a Roman citizen, he goes to Claudius Lysias and says, what are you about to do? Because he knows full well, binding, arresting, and scourging a Roman citizen is a serious violation of Roman law, especially for a man who is uncondemned. It would have meant extreme consequences for Claudius Lysias, the tribune. So, yeah... Claudius Lysias spun the situation to make himself look like the hero. And he left out a few key details in order to avoid the guilt and the shame and the consequences of his actions. But before we just kind of roll our eyes at Lysias and and just chalk him up as another just typical government official... Let's remind ourselves that even self-preserving government officials are a reflection of the people that they serve. And there are many godly government officials, and for them we praise God. But regarding Lysias, spinning this situation to make himself actually seem better than he is, and leaving out information about himself that would make him look worse... Can any of us really say that we have never been guilty of doing exactly the same thing? Probably under less pressure and with less severe consequences pending. I would go so far as to say that I actually think that this idea of making ourselves appear better than we actually are to others and avoiding certain details about ourselves that, that might look us, make us look worse. That, that, that tendency to do that, 
Maybe the main temptation that every one of us faces every single day. So I think there's two great questions along these lines that we can talk about as families over lunch today or in growth group this week. First, in what ways do I make myself seem better than I am to others? And as you're thinking about that, consider, are there certain people or situations where I'm especially tempted to do this? And, and, and how do I do that in those situations? Second, what faults or fears do I try to hide from others and why? What is it that I don't want to admit? Or what am I actually fearful of? So those two questions are, in what ways do I make myself seem better than I actually am to others? And second, what faults or fears do I try to hide from others? And why is that the case? I mean, there's a ton to potentially un pack there. So may God's spirit lead us in those discussions to help us to be transparent as it relates to what's going on in our hearts and to use us to point one another to Jesus in a remarkable way. Now, Lysias tells Felix that in this letter that this seems like an argument among the Jews and and he hasn't really found anything in Paul that's deserving of death or punishment. And thankfully, this basically will be the consensus opinion of the Roman officials about Paul all the way to Rome. So the soldiers, according to their instruction, verse 31, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with them. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from, and when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. So, Basically, this, this, this massive group of 470 horsemen and armed soldiers, they, they, they basically head northwest out of the city of Jerusalem. Now, I realize you can't see the details on this map, but just to get the perspective, Jerusalem is just northwest of the Dead Sea here, which is near the bottom. They head northwest towards Antipatris, and there's a little river right there, and then Caesarea is the only city there that's name is located in the Mediterranean Sea because it was a, a seaport city and it functioned as the, the local capital of the region. So at the river crossing at Antipatris, some, some of them head back knowing that Paul is now completely in the clear. He's still being escorted by this massive group of people, these soldiers and horsemen. And the reality then is he's now been rescued from multiple riots. He's been rescued from this latest assassination attempt. And the truth is that he is now being guarded by the Romans, who in most situations are the enemies of God's people, in Herod's praetorium, which was his palace, essentially a fortress, which was one of the safest places on earth at the time. So when I read this, I just have to laugh because this is an absolute Jesus flex here. There's no other way to think about it. Consider the spiritual realm with me for a moment. Imagine how frustrated Satan must be at this point. I told you that I, that I looked back through Acts to see all of these particular examples of of the message that Paul was proclaiming, trying to be silenced. Because if there's anything that Satan wants, he does not want the gospel to go forth to find out that there is saving grace available to the world through Jesus Christ. When I went back through it to find these places where Paul's been beaten or jailed or his life is under threat, I found at least one example in chapters 9, 14, 16, 18, 19, 21, 22, and 23. The only break there is in chapters 10 through 13. 
That's because Satan was going after James and Peter at the time. But in this case, in this particular case, in chapter 23 and verse 11, in the midst of this chaos, in the middle of the night, the Lord Jesus stood next to Paul and told him to his face, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must, so you must testify also in Rome. So immediately, let's look at the text with me, this encouragement is offered in chapter 23 and verse 11, which is the, 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 the verse that immediately precedes our section, right? Jesus says, you must testify also in Rome. Look at the beginning of verse 12. When it was day. So immediately, Satan launches a counter attack after this promise of Jesus. He tried to take Paul out once and for all. But Jesus had told Paul, you must testify to the facts about me in Rome. Now, a lot of commentators speculate as to why Paul was escorted from Jerusalem to Caesarea with such a ridiculous amount of troops? I think it's because Jesus is flexing on Satan. <laughs> I, I picture the conversation going like this. You're trying to kill Paul immediately after I told him to testify about me in Rome? How about this? I will send Paul safely on to Rome, escorted by nearly 500 Roman horsemen and soldiers. Go ahead. Have Adam, Lucifer. Then I'm going to have Paul kept in Herod's heavily guarded praetorium. His palace, his fortress, the safest place on earth. How are you going to get to him? Satan, I can have a young man expose your plot. I can have an enormous contingent of, of dreaded Roman troops, the enemy of my people, escort Paul like a king to stay in Herod's palace. Doesn't matter what it is, Satan, kids, enemies, everything is at my disposal. I will build my church and there's nothing that you can do to stop it. You should have listened to the words of Gamaliel earlier when you, when you instigated the high priest and the Sadducees to throw the apostles in prison. You know, when I sent an angel to open the door to let them out. When the Jewish leaders, let me just remind you, when the Jewish leaders went to the prison, they found it securely locked. And yet, no apostles you should have seen the look on your face, Satan, when someone said, look, the men whom you just put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. Yeah, you remember that? Gamaliel, Paul's mentor, said at the time to the Jews, if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail, but if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found to be opposing God. I know you were eavesdropping on that conversation. You should have listened to the human. It would have saved you a lot of frustration. Now, I'm not sure if that's exactly what Jesus said to Satan, but I'm pretty confident that was the message Jesus was sending through this armed convoy that safely brought Paul to Herod's palace despite Satan's best efforts to finally stop him. Now Luke told us in chapter 1 and verse 1 of Acts that his first letter, that is his gospel, taught us all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Therefore, this second letter, the book of Acts, is detailing what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach. What Jesus is doing is building his church. 
So this morning, I want you to take heart, brothers and sisters, from this passage that there is nothing anyone can do to stop the advance of the gospel because everyone and everything ultimately lives and moves at the command of King Jesus. So be confident as you seek to testify about Jesus, even as we just live out our normal everyday lives, even in a hostile world. Be confident because nothing can stop the gospel from advancing because King Jesus said so. To him be glory and honor, majesty and dominion from all time and and now at this moment and forever. Amen. Would you pray with me? Lord, we rejoice because of the work of King Jesus. We rejoice because he is Lord of heaven and earth. That is, he is Lord of this temporal world and he is Lord of the spiritual realm. Because of who he is and because of what he has done for us, we can walk through this world confident that that you are accomplishing your purposes in us and that you are accomplishing your purposes through us. So at this moment, in this place, glorify King Jesus because we love him with all of our might. Lead us by your spirit. Now we ask in his name, amen.